I can't tell you how good it feels to be back. <laughs> there are no words, and frankly, it would take too many words to express all that is in my heart. So I can, I'll simply say it's good to be back. Now, we covered this account back when we were in Matthew chapter 8 as we returned to our sermon text. And I quite look forward to returning to our series in Matthew, but I've spent quite a bit of time in the last couple of weeks and months meditating on this passage, and I want to share some of the things I've gleaned from it with you guys. The setting of our text should feel familiar. As we journeyed through Matthew, we saw Jesus and his disciples spending a lot of time around the Sea of Galilee uh, where this took place. Um, and the area has a very unique topography. To the north, you have the mountain, this mountain that just towers over the region, and the very cool air from that would fall down into the uh, the warmer, cooler, uh, the warmer air, more moist air when it would reach the uh, the sea be- below it. And it's been a few years since I've studied meteorology, cr- climatology, and microclimates like this, so, you know, I'll defer to somebody who knows what they're talking about, but I know at least that this set of conditions was prime to create a an environment where storm, very strong storms could appear very, very quickly and catch sailors like these completely off guard. And with that in mind, it's, well, To say that we've been through some storms recently has been a bit of an understatement. Both as a church and as individuals. You know, as I'm looking around, I'm seeing men and women who have labored beside me the last couple of months with things here at the church, and, you know, I'm really grateful for your efforts. And I'm also seeing plenty of people who've been through their fair share of storms and tragedies, people who've been through health scares, People who have uh, of all different kinds, health scares of family members, and testings of faith, and all uh, and all different kinds of difficulties. Just as I'm looking around this small room, I'm seeing everything under the sun. But we can take comfort in this because, as as my pastor likes to say, storms are inevitable. You're either you're either just coming into a storm, you're just leaving one, or about to go into another one. Storms are constant in life. In fact, you know, it's, uh, it's why First Peter 4 says, not to think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing has happened to you. And I'm very nor- it's quite normal in our human experience. In fact, we should perhaps think it odd if everything is going wonderfully for a prolonged period of time without a storm or a trial. We have to wonder, you know, am am I where I should be? (laughs) Am I on vacation when there's a spiritual war going on? If you will. Frankly, I I have a painting in my home office that I regularly reflect on. It's a picture of a battered ship at sea just being tossed to and fro in a storm. And at the bottom, there's a, there's a, a, a quotation that has made sense of so many things in my life. It says, calm seas have never produced a skilled sailor. And man, I, I love that. That is ministered to my heart. It makes sense out of the trials that I've gone through. It, it reminds me, hey, there, there's a purpose to this. It's doing, this storm is doing something in my life. God, and more importantly, God is doing something in that storm. We've got to put the focus where it belongs. James 1 even tells us to consider it pure joy when we face various trials of various kinds for a reason. 
Because God uses it to produce the good fruit that that passage describes, bringing to us patience and endurance and hope. And I've learned to love that. And likewise, in these troubled waters that we see in Luke chapter 8, God has a plan, a purpose, and a message for his disciples that he wants them to understand. And I think by extension, he wants us to understand 2,000 years later. So let's see exactly what that is as we pick up quickly in verse 22, where it says, One day he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. And so they set out. And so the first thing we must notice, who is leading them into these waters? It's Jesus. Jesus is leading them into these waters. And do you think Jesus doesn't know what's about to happen? I don't know what God you serve, but my God knows what's about to take place. <laughs> he, he gets it. Nothing takes Jesus by surprise. And that gives us comfort when we know who is leading us into the trial and who's in control of it as well. But I'm getting ahead of myself there a little bit. Now, myself, on the other hand, you know, I'm not always good at that if I'm being honest with myself <laughs> and with all of you guys. I have uh, gotten quite good at apologizing to my wife for not preparing for trials adequately, for not preparing for the day's uh, journey, if you will. I've gotten quite good at apologizing to my wife for forgetting to pack a lunch for three starving children <laughs> as we take a day trip somewhere. Oops, sorry. I am so much I am so grateful that Jesus is so much better of a leader than I am. And frankly because you know I'm so glad that Jesus is the head of the church. It's never been me, don't let anyone ever say that. But nor is it the session nor any governing body. Jesus is the head of the church. And he's going to provide for it, he's going to take care of it and he is actively leading it. And we must remember from this text, Jesus will never lead you where he doesn't want you. Jesus will never lead you where he doesn't want you. He will never, and furthermore, he will never leave you without the resources you need for the trial he's sending you into. He'll always give enough. Even if it seems like he's leading you into the storm, well, he's preparing you for the storm. He's sending you with what he need, with what you need for that storm. It's been said that where God guides, God provides. And I am so convinced of that statement. It's absolutely true. But as the disciples are about to find out, it's not about trusting in the resources God has given you in advance. It's trusting that when I need it, God's going to give me what I need to accomplish what he desires in that moment. So again, it's not about trusting in my resources or my ability to bring in everything or even a God that can just give me everything I need in advance, but trusting that the God who we serve is able to provide us with everything we need in the moment we need it. Trusting not in the resources, but trusting in a person. Does that make sense? So secondly, we see the peace we ought to have as we enter into these storms. We don't always have it, but we see in our text next the peace that we ought to have in these trials as we see how Jesus responds to them as we continue into verse 23, where it says, And as they sailed, 
he fell asleep. And the windstorm came down on the lake, and they, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And, and they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. Let's stop there for a second, actually. The contrast between Jesus and his disciples in this moment could not be any greater. <laughs> Couldn't be any greater. These guys are on their wits end. We are perishing. God, have you forgotten us? We are doomed. And Jesus is asleep, unbothered by the storm that is upon them. My friends, we need to look to Jesus and see what he is doing in the storm and not just what our own frantic reactions are doing. <laughs> and, and frankly, you know, in a personal example, I, I, this is why discipleship is so important. Because I had to see that modeled for me before I could make sense of that in my own life. I remember when I was a young intern uh, being mentored by my pastor, I was given a particular task to do, and things were crazy, things were busy, and I was just so overwhelmed. I was so worried about what was going on. I'm frantic, and you know, I, from my perspective, things are falling apart, and I see my mentor in the mix of this, and I just start lamenting, and I'm saying, oh, all these horrible things are happening. I need you to help me. It's urgent. I need you right now. And he just... Stops and says, okay, first, first and foremost, most important thing we have to do right now, John. Knock, knock. What? <laughs> Don't you understand what we have to do right now and you want to tell me a knock, knock joke? <laughs> I, I can't remember what the punchline ended up was or I'd share it, but the point was, as frantic as I was, it didn't bother him. And if it wasn't bothering the more experienced person who was overseeing even myself and the whole process, why should I be worried? If he's not in a rush and has time to tell me a knock-knock joke, why am I frantic and worried and without any peace? And that's what we need to do. If, 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 if he, the person in charge of me, wasn't bothered and he's more experienced, I can trust, hey, there's a solution. He's walked this path before. There's going to be peace at the other side of it. I just need to trust the process. And if that is true of my human mentor, I mean, gosh, how much more true is that of our heavenly Father? Because look, last I checked, Jesus isn't pacing in the heavens when things seem to be going wrong on earth. No, last I read in the scriptures, he is seated on his throne at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And I assure you, he is not seated at the edge of his seat, worried that things aren't going to work out. No, God already has the answers for your trials. Mine and the church's. He has it all sorted out already. Praise God for that. He has the plan. So It's okay if I don't have all the things worked out. I know the one who does. And with that in mind, Jesus shows us the answer, as we journey further into verse 24, where he arose, it says, and he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. And he said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this? that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. There's much to be said in this passage, but for time's sake and 
We're going to move this along quickly, but I will say this. The lesson that Jesus wants them to receive is in the question, where is your faith? Let me tell you, you, the peace that you will experience in this lifetime as a Christian is directly proportional to how big or how small your God is in your own mind. Now I say in your own mind for a reason. God made the heavens and the earth. God is the King of kings, Lord of lords, able to do all things. Nothing is too hard for him. And he is all loving as well, the scriptures have assured us of. He is loving and powerful. That's a big God. (laughs) He is able to do that, but we don't always experience his peace because he's too small in our own minds. It's been said that, you know, when you fly in an airplane, there's no reason to have any anxiety. Well, or rather I should say, your anxiety is linked to how much you trust the captain. Now, here's the funny thing. Your anxiety doesn't affect the captain's ability to fly the plane. It only affects your ability to enjoy the ride. He's going to fly the plane as well or as poorly as he's going to, regardless of how you feel. The question is how much you trust the captain, and that's going to either give you peace or rob you of peace. How much do you trust the captain of your soul? How much do you trust our Savior? Do you trust that he's big enough and loving enough to meet you where you are in this storm? Because that's going to make all the difference in how you experience this. Is there a skilled sailor at the head of your boat, if you will, to mix analogies for a minute? Because look, if your God is distant and doesn't know you and doesn't care about you, I'm going to be frank, you should be worried about this life. There's a lot going on in this world today. Have you read the newspaper? Have you turned on the news? It is a scary time to be alive. But you see, my God is big enough to give me peace in these storms. The Jesus I serve can calm the raging storm with just a rebuke. With the same authority as a parent or a teacher could walk into a room full of seven-year-old children, and suddenly bring peace to the whole room. Jesus can calm even storms with even more power than that. Perhaps I just thought of that analogy because my mom was a teacher. (laughs) But it's certainly true. Jesus wants us to go through life with not with a self-confidence, but with a God-confidence. That we should live as if there is a God who loves us and cares for us, and is present with us. He's promised to be with us till the end of the age, Matthew 28. He invites us to cast our cares upon him in Hebrews chapter 4, that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, we read earlier in Hebrews 13. We have every reason to trust him at his word. So, And we ought to, because that is who he is. So my friends, hear, hear, hear this as... We move this forward that there is power in the words of Jesus. There's a reason I didn't title this sermon, The Storms of Life. That might have been relatable, but that's not what this text is about. It's about the power of Jesus' words. And that when he speaks into a situation, things change. There's a power in that. It's the power of Jesus' words. 
But you know, as you meditate on that, even for just a few minutes, you can't help but to think of Genesis chapter 1, where God also spoke, and things just were. (laughs) God spoke, let there be light, and there was light. You ever notice that? God has so much power and authority just in his words that he just says, light be, and there was light. Let 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 the let the let the universe be. Let there be stars also. Let there be land. Let there be sea. Let there be plants and animals. And then finally us. But just by speaking. Wow, the power of Jesus' words. Because he was there in the beginning with the Father. John chapter 1 assures us of that. He's able to say to, and likewise, we pass, go forward further into the narrative. He says to the storm, stop, and it stops. He says to the paralytic, rise, take up your mat and walk, and he walks. And most importantly, he says to us, your sins are forgiven. And shockingly, they are. Now, we struggle with that sometimes. We make it a bigger deal than, 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 we, than these other things as if we, we feel like God can't just forgive me. Well, it's got to be harder than that, right? It's got to take time. It's got to be a process. I mean, God, don't you have to have a committee to put together? I mean, we are good Presbyterians in heaven after all. Got to have a committee together and we got to decide and there's got to be a waiting period and this and that and make sure your paperwork doesn't get lost in the process and maybe we just might forgive you eventually. No, it's not like that. No, there's a, there's, there's a reason why when Linwood led us a few weeks ago and he mentioned that, you know, say to, when he said to the man with the withered hand, you know, stretch out your hand. And he, and he said to the inquirer, you know, which, which is harder to stay, r- r- stretch out your hand or your sins are forgiven. There's a reason he asked that question. Both are impossible. But Jesus said, you know, that the reason he did that miracle was to show, hey, look, if I can... If I can do this miracle, which is impossible, you can trust I can do this other impossible thing I'm telling you is going to happen, that your sins will be forgiven. That's the point. And likewise, I am no more able to calm a storm than atone for my own sins, but Jesus can and has done both. The cross of Jesus Christ is that sufficient to pay for my sins and yours entirely. So if we believed in him and we have turned to him, it's as simple as that. You are forgiven. It's not us in our power. It is the power of the cross that has atoned for our sins. And that's why we call grace amazing. Guys, we wouldn't be gathering together on a Sunday morning if grace was mediocre, if grace was subpar, if grace was acceptable. We're here because God's grace is amazing. And finally, before we wrap this up this morning, if God's words are so powerful that withered hands are immediately restored, that the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the sins of the world can be forgiven, could you just imagine with me for a moment the impact and the power that would take place if someone at some point were to compile a collection of God's powerful words and maybe make it acceptable, accessible 
to the world for us to be able to dig into and breathe in these powerful words. Could you just imagine how much the world would change? Are you getting the point, church? God has given us access to something far more powerful than I think we take credit, than we, we take it for granted. The power that God has given us his word to each of us. Hebrews 4.12 says, God, the, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 2 Timothy 3.17 says, with God's word, a man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Man, it, it would take way too much time to unpack what all of this means, but these words are powerful. God's word is powerful. And if a short rebuke from Jesus can undo a whole storm, could you imagine what a whole book of God's word can do in your life? And look, I, I, I get it. I know I probably feel like a, I feel like a broken record sometimes. Get in the word, get in the word, get in the word, get in the word. <laughs> the record just keeps skipping, and I get that. But there's a reason why. I know I have no power in myself. I know there are no power in my own words. I, my own, my own, this sermon is only powerful as the word of God is behind it. That, that, that's where the power comes from. It's not me. So I don't want you all looking at me. I want you looking at he. I want you looking into the words of life. Because there is power in the name of Jesus. There's power in the word of Jesus. Because look, I, I, I've seen what it does. You can't be a student of history and not see what this book has done. It's transformed cultures. It's transformed whole societies. It's transformed so many individuals as well, like you and I. It's transformed drug dealers into missionaries. It's transformed hippies into church-planting pastors. It's changed countless sinners like myself over from death to life. I just want to see that word get released and watch God do his thing. So as we bring it to a close this morning, I don't know what your particular storm looks like, which one you're coming from, which one you're going into, which one you're in the middle of, but I know the one who's sovereign over it. And that's the source of our peace. I know the one who can still it with just one word. I know the one who is going to lead you through it. And look, I'm not one of those preachers that's going to make you promises I can't keep either. We're not promised our choice of the outcomes of a storm. You know, sometimes we pray and we do lose the job. Sometimes we pray and the prodigals remain prodigals. Sometimes we pray and the healing doesn't come in the timing we hoped it for. Maybe the healing comes the other side of eternity. However, what we are promised is that Jesus is with us in that storm. We are promised that he is more than enough for us, that he will sustain us in our time of need, that we are available to go before his throne of grace in time of need, that we are able to have his support, his help, his guidance, and that he has a plan and a purpose for everything. So whatever you personally are going through today, cling to Jesus. Cling to his word in whatever storm that it is. There is power in his word. And there is power 
in his name. Thanks be to God. Amen.